to episode 42 of Bee Boomer Unleashed. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for today's episodes and all the episodes of Bee Boomer Unleashed. Today, in episode 42, we talk about why gun control won't stop violence, and this is going to be a multi-episode series, and We'll explain more about that as we go on, but before we get into today's podcast, let me remind you where you can always find us. You can find us at bboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at bboomerunleashed. On iHeartRadio, you can find us at b.boomerunleashed. On Facebook, Spotify, Tumblr, Instagram, you can find our link at bboomerunleashed, and on Twitter at bboomerunleashed1. And as always, we encourage you to email us at bboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's bboomerunleashed at gmail.com. We appreciate your comments and questions that we receive through the email. It gives us ideas for future episodes, and we appreciate the feedback. Well, we've uh, finished a few weeks on uh, our First Amendment rights and the separation of church and state, and then last week we took a little detour down the uh, conservative Christian Patriots manifesto, and hopefully that was of some benefit to you. I know it helped me get some things off my chest, so hopefully it was of some benefit to you as well. Well, in episode 42, we're starting a uh, multi-episode series on gun control and why it won't stop violence. In today's episode, we're going to share a chronology basically, of gun control throughout the decades to initiate this discussion on why stricter gun laws are just simply not the answer to keep our kids safe at school, our members safe at church, or our friends and family safe at public venues like Walmart or some other shopping center or a a ball game or a concert. We're living in a time, folks, that is unlike anything that we've ever experienced uh, in the history of the United States of America. It's a dangerous place that we live in, and we have experienced all these years of freedom, and we're used to a certain way of life, and we have certain expectations, but outside elements and corruption And radicals have changed the way that you and I live. And every time some uh, tragedy happens, some uh, school shooting or church shooting or uh, Walmart shooting or whatever it might be, the liberals want to jump on the bandwagon and say, well, we need stricter gun laws. We need stricter gun laws. Well, folks, stricter gun laws are not going to help the problem that we face today. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that the legislature over the years have tried to curb this violence by enacting gun laws. And we're going to talk about some Supreme Court decisions that have actually favored gun rights. And we're going to go through these today as kind of a really a springboard to this discussion so that we can branch out into different areas of discussion. We're going to talk about uh, other ways that people commit violence. We're going to talk about things in these schools that could have been done to prevent some of these tragedies that uh, were perpetrated upon our students. And there's more gun control is just not the answer. And we're going to talk about that. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, back in baby boomer days, it was a whole different time. It was not uncommon for a young man to bring his shotgun on the school bus and put it in his locker in case he wanted to go 
squirrel hunting with some of his buddies after school. And nobody thought anything about it. You know, in the 60s, when I was in high school, uh, the late, mid to late 60s, uh, if you had a pickup truck, you had a gun rack. And a lot of times there was one or two guns uh, in that gun rack, a shotgun or maybe a rifle. And you certainly carried those in the truck during uh, hunting season because you never knew when you might want to stop and go hunting. You always had some hunting gear with you. And nobody paid any attention to that. You know, I guarantee you there were several times when I was in high school that I drove my dad's pickup truck and there was a shotgun in the gun rack on the school parking lot. Now, the truck was locked, obviously, but that was more commonplace. It wasn't absurd when you saw someone with a gun on a gun rack in the back of a pickup truck. It was kind of a status symbol, really, back in the day. But not today. Oh, my, not today. But we live in a different time and a different era and a different place, but gun control is not the answer. Let's go over the Second Amendment a bit. Our, our discussion between the separation of church and state that we spent a few episodes on came from the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Well, let's take a look at the Second Amendment. It's pretty simple. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So our right is given there in the Second Amendment. Now, a lot of people want to argue, well, that was just for the militia or that was just for, you know, the military or whatever. No, no, it's not. It's two completely different thoughts. A well-regulated militia. Certainly we need a well-regulated militia in this country. And because, as it goes on to say, it's necessary to the security of a free state. One of the reasons that we haven't had a whole lot of fighting on American soil since the Civil War is the fact that everybody and his brother has a gun in the house. And people don't want to take on you. You know, you come to the United States of America to pick a fight You're not just picking a fight with the military. And certainly we have the greatest military on the face of the earth, but you're not just picking a fight with the military. You're picking a fight with every man and woman and sometimes boy and girl in the United States of America because we all are armed citizens, responsible citizens, law-abiding citizens who are armed because we are guaranteed under the Second Amendment the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And folks, that's put in there for a specific purpose so that we as Americans can not only defend ourselves and our families, but we can defend our country in situations where we have foreign or domestic aggression. And the Supreme Court, and thank goodness that the Supreme Court came down on the proper side of this, and the District of Columbia versus Heller, uh, the decision was rendered in 2008. Now, this was a landmark case in which the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to keep and bear arms, unconnected with any service in a militia, for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home and that the District of Columbia's handgun ban and requirement that lawfully owned rifles and shotguns be kept unloaded and disassembled 
or bound by a trigger lock violated this guarantee. So a tremendous decision on the side of the Second Amendment was given there. And, uh, you know, the uh, Washington, D.C., I think for over 30 years had a law that you, you know, couldn't have a ha- on a handgun in Washington, D.C. Well, the Heller decision overturned all that. And it not only made that decision effective for Washington, D.C., but it made it effective all over the country in that we are guaranteed under the Second Amendment the right to keep and bear arms. Now, they're trying to take that away from us, folks. I hope you know that. A little over a month ago, a group called the Thought Company. I think they can be found on thoughtco.com. They've got some interesting things on there, and they are not really in a position to take an opinion, but they kind of present some facts on some different topics. And they published an article uh, regarding the timeline of gun control in the United States of America. They really don't offer any opinion, as I said, on the debate, but simply a timeline of legislation and Supreme Court rulings. Now, we're going to use this timeline today as a springboard for future episodes and hopefully help folks understand that additional gun control is not the answer to our problems, as the liberals and socialists would have us believe. I think that the majority of us can probably agree that gun control became a much bigger topic shortly after the November 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. You know, Kennedy's death increased public awareness of the relative lack of control over the sale and possession of firearms in America. And until 1968, handguns, rifles, shotguns, and ammunition were commonly sold over the counter and through mail-order catalogs and magazines to just about any adult anywhere in the nation. You know, we used to be able to go down to the local uh, department store or hardware store. We could buy us a shotgun or a rifle or a pistol or a revolver, and we weren't placed in a position of having to go through some big background check or anything in order to purchase that as long as we were of legal age. You could even order them through the mail, and they would ship them right to your front door. However, America's history of federal and state laws regulating private ownership goes way back, and we're going to start back You know, in 1791, where the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, gains final ratification. And as we have already read the Second Amendment, it says, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, since that time, lots of folks have tried to legislate against the ownership of guns. In 1837, for example, Georgia passed a law banning handguns. Now, in 1865, this law was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. In a reaction to the emancipation of slaves, several southern states adopted black codes, which, among other things, forbid black persons from possessing firearms. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Then in 1871... The National Rifle Association, NRA, is organized around its primary goal of improving American civilians' marksmanship in preparation for war. So they were originated primarily to help with the shooting and marksmanship in case we were attacked, that we would be able, 
as private citizens with the right to keep and bear arms to fend ourselves and our family and our homeland. So the NRA was organized then, and today they're in a fight for the rights of gun owners. Who would have ever thought that it would come to what it has today? In 1927, the U.S. Congress passed a law banning the mailing of concealable weapons. So, you know, 1927, you couldn't mail those pistols anymore. Then in 1934, the National Firearms Act came along regulating the manufacture, sale, and possession of fully automatic firearms like submachine guns, and that's approved by Congress. You know, that was back in the days of Al Capone, and I guess they didn't want people to just be able to go out and buy a machine gun, but probably wouldn't have stopped Al Capone. Probably didn't stop him, did it? Uh, The Federal Firearms Act of 1938 places the first limitations on selling ordinary firearms. Persons selling guns, according to this act, were required to obtain a federal firearms license at an annual cost of a dollar and to maintain records of the name and address of persons to whom firearms are sold. Gun sales to persons convicted of violent felonies were prohibited, and felons shouldn't own guns. Felons give up that right when they commit a felony. They should not own a gun. I will agree with that. The Gun Control Act of 1968 is enacted for the purpose of keeping firearms out of the hands of those not legally entitled to possess them because of age, criminal background, or incompetence. The Act also regulates imported guns, expands the gun dealer licensing and record-keeping requirements, and places specific limitations on the sale of handguns. The list of persons banned from buying guns is expanded to include persons convicted of any non-business-related felony, persons found to be mentally incompetent, and users of illegal drugs. Then in 1972, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is created. We know them as the ATF, listing as part of its mission the control of the illegal use and sale of firearms. Then in 1977, The District of Columbia enacts an anti-handgun law, which also requires registration of all rifles and shotguns within the District of Columbia. Now, there's the nation's capital, the keepers of the Constitution of the United States of America. And they're going to ban people from owning handguns there in 1977. 1986, the Armed Career Criminal Act increases penalties for possessions of firearms by persons not qualified to own them under the Gun Control Act of 1986. The Firearm Owners Protection Act relaxes some restrictions on gun and ammunition sales and establishes mandatory penalties for the use of firearms during the commission of a crime. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. If you use a firearm in the commission of a crime, the penalty should be severe. If you kill somebody with a firearm or a lead pipe or anything else in the commission of a crime, the penalty ought to be death, ought to be execution. I've got no problem with that, but leave the law-abiding citizens alone. The Law Enforcement Officers Protection Act bans cop-killer bullets capable of penetrating bulletproof clothing. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signs the Undetectable Firearms Act of 1988, making it illegal to manufacture, import, sell, ship, deliver, possess, transfer, or receive any firearm that is not detectable by any walk-through metal detector. 
In other words, they don't want them making fiber guns or guns out of things that can't be detected by metal detectors. That's not a problem. 1989, California bans the possession of semi-automatic assault weapons. Now, as I said before, previous episodes, there's no such thing as an assault weapon. Weapons don't assault people. People assault people. Do we have assault hammers, assault hatchets, assault pipes, assault cars? No. But they want to make these weapons sound really, really dangerous by calling them assault weapons. And there's no such thing. But California bans them anyway, following the massacre of five children on a Stockton, California school playground. Then in 1990, the Gun Control Act of 1990 bans the manufacturing and importing semi-automatic assault weapons in the United States and quote-unquote gun-free school zones are established carrying specific penalties for violations. Well, the evil people who commit these crimes of violence against our children, they didn't pay much attention to the Crime Control Act of 1990, did they? Just another example of many that tell us that legislation of gun control laws has little or no effect whatsoever on violent acts. None. Then in 1994, we have the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act. Posed a five-day waiting period on the purchase of a handgun and required that local law enforcement agencies conduct background checks on purchasers of handguns. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 prohibits the sale, manufacture, importation, or possession of several specific types of assault-type weapons. There we use that term again for a 10-year period. However, the law expired on September 13, 2004, after Congress fails to reauthorize it. Then, in 1997, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the case of Prince versus the United States, declared that the background check requirement of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act was unconstitutional. Then, the Florida Supreme Court upholds a jury's $11.5 million verdict against Kmart for selling a gun to an intoxicated man who used the gun to shoot his estranged girlfriend. Now, Really, Kmart, you shouldn't have sold a gun to a guy that was intoxicated. I mean, I kind of have to agree with that. You don't sell guns to people who are showing signs of intoxication. Shame on you, Kmart. Major American gun manufacturers at that same time voluntarily agreed to include child safety trigger devices on all new handguns. Then in 1998, a Justice Department report indicates the blocking of some 69,000 handgun sales during 1997 when the Brady pre-sale background checks were required. In July of 1998, an amendment requiring a trigger lock mechanism to be included with every handgun sold in the United States was defeated in the Senate, but the Senate approves an amendment requiring gun dealers to have trigger locks available for sale and creating federal grants for gun safety and education programs. Then in October of 1998, New Orleans becomes the first U.S. city to file suit against gun makers. 
firearms trade associations, and gun dealers. The city's suit seeks recovery of costs attributed to gun-related violence. Oh, yes, let's blame someone. Let's blame anyone for this gun violence. You know, we have lots of people killed every year by automobiles. Are we going to sue Ford or Chevrolet or GM or Toyota or Honda? Because their automobile killed somebody. It wasn't the automobile. It's not the gun. It's the fool behind the wheel of the automobile or the fool or evil person operating the gun. Then in November 12, 1998, Chicago files a $433 million lawsuit against local gun dealers and makers alleging that oversupplying local markets provided guns to criminals. Wow. Chicago's toughest gun laws, I suppose, in the country. Right along with New York City and Boston, Mass, and Los Angeles. Yet these are the murder capitals of the world. So legislation, that hasn't done a whole lot, has it? Then a negligence suit was brought against gunmaker Beretta by a family of a 14-year-old boy killed by another boy with a Beretta handgun. (laughs) Now, fortunately, that was dismissed by a California jury. Certainly, it's not Beretta's fault that some kid misused the gun. And then in November of 1998, permanent provisions of the Brady Act go into effect. Gun dealers are now required to initiate a pre-sale criminal background check of all gun buyers through the newly created National Instant Criminal Background Check, NICS, computer system. Then December 1st, 1998, the NRA filed suit in federal court attempting to block the FBI's collection of information on firearm buyers. 1998, President Bill Clinton announces the instant background check system had prevented 400,000 illegal gun purchases. That was found to be a misleading figure, by the way. January 1999, civil suits against gun makers seeking to recover costs of gun-related violence were filed in Bridgeport, Connecticut in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Then in April 1999 at Columbine High School, these two whack jobs went in and killed 12 other students and a teacher and wound 24 others before killing themselves. And, of course, that attack once again renews the debate on the need for more restrictive gun control laws. As we get into this, folks, we're going to discover why guns are not the problem. Then in May of 1999, by a 51-50 vote with the tiebreaker vote cast by Vice President Al Gore, the U.S. Senate passes a bill requiring trigger locks on all newly manufactured handguns and extending waiting period and background check requirements to sales of firearms at gun shows. So that's why when you buy a handgun now, it has a lock, a padlock in it, or some sort of a locking system that can be used to disable your gun. Then in August of 1999, the Los Angeles, California Board of Supervisors votes 3-2 to two to ban the Great Western Gun Show, billed as the world's largest gun show from the Pomona Fairgrounds, where it had been held for the last 30 years. It's always the liberals' knee-jerk reaction to, you know, we got to do something, got to do anything, got to do something. After lengthy and heated debate, Congress allows the 10-year-old Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, banning the sale of 19 types of military assault-style weapons to expire. December of 2004, Congress fails to continue funding for George W. Bush's 2001 gun control program, Project Safe Neighborhoods, 
Massachusetts then becomes the first state to implement an electronic instant gun buyer background check system with fingerprint scanning for gun licenses and gun purchases. January 2005, California bans the manufacture, sale, distribution, or import of the powerful 50 caliber BMG, or Browning Machine Gun Rifle. October 05, President Bush signs the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, limiting the ability of victims of crimes in which guns were used to sue firearms manufacturers. January 2008, in a move supported by both opponents and advocates of gun control, President Bush signs the National Instant Criminal Background Check Improvement Act, requiring gun buyer background checks to screen for legally declared mentally ill individuals who are ineligible to ban to buy firearms. We'd already talked about the District of Columbia versus Heller, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment affirmed the rights of individuals to own firearms. The ruling also overturns a 32-year-old ban on the sale and possession of handguns in the District of Columbia. February 2010, a federal law signed by President Barack Obama took effect allowing licensed gun owners to bring firearms into national parks and wildlife refuges as long as they are allowed by state law. Uh, The uh, Undetectable Firearms Act of 1988 was extended through 2035 in December of 2013. In July of 2015, in an effort to close the so-called gun show loophole, allowing gun sales conducted without Brady Act background checks, U.S. Rep. Jackie Spear of California introduces the Fix Gun Checks Act of 2015 to require background checks for all gun sales, including sales made over the Internet and at gun shows. June 2016, President Obama again calls on Congress to enact or renew a law prohibiting the sale and possession of assault-style weapons and high-capacity ammunition after a man who was identified as Omar Mateen kills 49 people in Orlando, Florida in a gay nightclub on June 12th using an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. And they called a 911 he made during the attack. Mateen told police he had pledged his allegiance to radical Islamic terrorist group ISIS. Then in 2017, a bill titled Sportsman Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act, or SHARE, advances to the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives while the main purpose of the bill is to expand Uh, access to public land for hunting, fishing, and recreational shooting, a provision added by Representative Jeff Duncan of South Carolina called the Hearing Protection Act would reduce the current federal restrictions on purchasing firearm silencers. Currently, the restrictions on silencer purchases are similar to those for machine guns, including extensive background checks, waiting periods, and track transfer taxes. Duncan's provision will eliminate those restrictions. October 2017, barely a year after the Orlando shooting, a man identified as Stephen Craig Paddock opens fire on an outdoor music festival in Las Vegas, shooting from the 32nd floor. And on October 4th, less than a week after that shooting, Senator Dianne Feinstein introduced the Automatic Gunfire Prevention Act that would ban the sale and possession of bump stocks. The bill states it's unlawful for any person to import, sell, manufacture, transfer, or possess a bump stock. 
Then on October 5, 2017, Senator Feinstein introduces the Background Check Completion Act. Feinstein says the bill would close loophole in the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act. In February 21, 2018, just days after the February 14th mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneland Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, President Donald Trump orders the Justice Department and the BATF to review bump fire stocks, devices that allow semi-automatic rifle to act like an automatic rifle. Then, in the wake of three mass shootings, uh, one in Gilroy, California, one in El Paso, Texas, one in Dayton, Ohio, in the span of two weeks, that left a total of almost three dozen people dead, a new push was made in Congress for gun control measures. Among those proposals were stronger background checks, limits on high-capacity magazine, red flag laws, and even President Donald Trump in August of 2019 indicated he would support new legislation requiring common-sense background checks for gun purchases. He says on background checks, he says, we have tremendous support. Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. So anyway, folks, that is kind of the legislation that we've had since the initiation of the Second Amendment. And with all of that legislation, with all of that legislation, gun violence, you would think, would be at an all-time low because of all the laws that we have on the books. But oh no, we pass more laws and we have more people killed. We make it more restrictive to own a handgun or a rifle or an assault, quote-unquote, assault-type weapon. We make it more restrictive, and what happens? Cases of violence go up. So, folks, you would think with all this legislation, if there was any correlation between legislation and more strict gun control laws, that violence would be at an all-time low. Gun violence in particular would be at an all-time low. But no, continues to rise. Well, next week and in the weeks following, we're going to tell you why I think gun violence is on the rise and how more restrictive gun laws won't stop the violence. But I do have a solution, and I want you to tune in next week to listen to that. Listen, we've gone over our projected 25 minutes by a few minutes today, so I better close it up and end by saying this. Have a great week, and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye.